All right, Proverbs chapter 16. If you'll join me back there again, we didn't quite get out the back end of the 16th chapter last time in Proverbs as we kind of keep working our way through this sort of workshop of wisdom, God giving to us these various nuggets of wisdom on different topics. Proverbs 16 verse 25 is where we pick back up from last time where this should sound somewhat familiar. It says, Proverbs 16, 25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, certainly I hope you, to some degree, especially if you were with us back in chapter 14, it wasn't that long ago, we find in chapter 14 that exact same verse given to us that same proverb in chapter 14, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So certainly here the idea is the Holy Spirit clearly is being repetitious. Uh, Again, as we've talked about before, if you think about the reality, whether it's the ministry of Jesus as God in the flesh, living among humanity, his public ministry was only three and a half or so years. Certainly, Jesus did not say everything that he could, but apparently he said everything that he needed to say. Certainly, when we look at the Word of God, I mean, pretty substantial-sized book, the, you know, the canon of Scripture, the Old and New Testament, what we have of the inspired, recorded Word of God given to us, certainly, again, when you think about God, and we're going to be learning for all of eternity, the Bible tells us, when you think about a God who's infinite and all-wise and all-knowing, certainly, again, if God wanted to tell us everything he could have told us uh, and would have said to us everything he could say, uh, all the volumes on the earth couldn't hold everything, every statement, promise, truth, corrective word, whatever, that God could have spoken to us, but God apparently has given to us everything that we need in the sufficiency of the word of God. Now, when we consider that and then take into consideration, as I've said before, the fact that God on a few occasions in the word of God would actually choose to be repetitious, which God is doing here. God is being repetitious because in the 31 chapters of the book of Proverbs, think of all the wisdom God the Spirit could have given to us, and here we find an exact repetition of a statement, a verse, a nugget of wisdom given to us, literally from chapter 14, again, the exact same statement shows up here, and again, it's not because this is a misprint, it's not because God you know, had a, a lapse, you know, in his memory, or just he kind of forgot, oop, I forgot, I already said that one. That's not the case here. God's not double-minded. God has no flaws. So the only thing that we can come to conclusion about is that must apparently be something that is somewhat important. Because if God's going to choose to be repetitious and say the same thing twice, instead of giving to us some new novel additionally insightful thing, it must be from God's perspective, look, this is fundamental. It's important. It's one of the basics. It's an important warning. And again, I think that's something to keep in mind as well, even just the, the you know, outside looking in. That's a good reminder to us that sometimes there's just as much or more value in repeating something somebody already knows in telling them the truth than it is always having to say some new or novel insight. Sometimes repeating and telling somebody the thing that they already know and just telling them again or reminding them again is actually more beneficial 
than it is telling them some new thing or some new insight. And here God has no problem with repetition, and he gives this caution of this human reality that at times there is a way for us as human beings that can seem right to us, notice, as a man. And I think there's an important emphasis, as a man. Because as human beings, what separates us from God is I'm not all-knowing. I don't see the beginning all the way to the end. I live life one day at a time, one hour at a time, one page at a time, if you would. God sees the whole book from first page to last page. He knows every chapter. He knows every paragraph. He knows the beginning. So, but to a man, we have limited knowledge. We're finite we often don't have all the details. We don't know everything that's happening. I don't know how this, a lot of times, may connect to that. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to unfold next week. So I'm dealing with a very limited basis of knowledge and understanding, trying to do the best I can to follow the Lord, to pray, to make good decisions, to, to take a path that seems correct or to do things in a right way. But God says it's important to always realize that at times there is a way that can seem right to a man, but never forget you're a man. That's the problem. You're a man, you're a woman, you're a human being, where he says that very way that may seem so right to us, the end of that path or taking that way may actually be not just you fall down and skin your knee. He says it may actually be that way that we're so confident is right is actually the way to our own destruction, to our own personal putting an end or ruin to ourselves. Now, that's, that's a pretty strong caution there. And it's that God wants us to realize that sometimes I can be so certain that my way is right or even the way that I'm trying to do something is right. This is the right way to do this. And we can be so confident that our way is right, that we're taking or a path we're pursuing or that the way we're handling something or doing something is right. And it may actually be the reality is the end of that path is actually ruined. It's actually self-destructive. It's something that's not only the wrong way, it's actually something that can be a destructive and a harmful way. So God wants us to realize we should always be seeking the Lord, bringing things before. Lord, if I'm wrong, show me. If I'm wrong, Lord, bring people into my life to, you know, to challenge my thought or to say, you know, I don't know, do you, do you, I know you think that feels like the right way, but maybe that's not the right way. Or to get us to maybe at times be open to having a little more flexibility if we got a course correct or adjust just the way we're approaching things. And so wise people don't just consider a path. The Bible says here, wise people also take into consideration the outcome. It's not just what path, it's where is that path going to lead? And we have to think with prudence about that if we want to be wise, because sometimes, again, we have to humbly realize we can be misguided, we can be totally off track, sometimes our feelings are driving us, our emotions, sometimes it's our own pragmatic mind and our logical way of thinking, and look, sometimes God works outside of logic. First Bible, uh, you know, the first book I ever read outside of the Bible by A.W. Tozer was a book called Faith Beyond Reason, and that was the whole premise of the book was that sometimes living by faith may actually be something that supersedes human reasoning. And sometimes our own logical mind and pragmatic thinking, nothing wrong with being pragmatic and logical, but sometimes God works outside of the box. He's a miracle-working God, and sometimes he does things in a way that supersede human reason. And so that's where we got to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit and not just kind of, hey, well, this looks right, it seems right on paper, Hey, God, I can be off track, so help me not to go the wrong way. 
to think about the destination. Again, good warning, great Bible verse to commit to memory. It may spare us sometimes or help us to be able to maybe speak into someone else's life and to spare them to think twice. Verse 26, he says, the person who labors, labors for himself, for his hungry mouth drives him on. Now, uh, the idea here seems to be, it's, you know, it's really incredible how a person kind of coming to, you might say, the realization of their own personal need, their hunger, right? A hungry belly, I, you know, I need food, I'm going to not survive, I feel hunger in my stomach, that a person coming into that realization of their own personal need or their hunger, God says it's amazing how that becomes a very effective motivator to make a person actually become productive. And you see what he says here, he says, the person who labors, labors for himself. In other words, I can't count on somebody else. I got to labor for myself because I need to find food for myself and create a roof for myself and buy clothes for myself. He says his hungry mouth is what drives him on. Now, that's just a reality. It's not meant to be a negative thing. When Trump, someone truly senses in a personal realization and responsibility, if I don't labor and I don't acquire what I need for dinner or to get food or, or to get shelter, I'm not going to have it. If I don't labor and acquire that and my hunger drive doesn't make me work to create so that I can have food for myself and I'm not going to have basic necessities, that hard realization, God says, that can drive a man to work. That can cause a man to go from being lazy to productive because they know they need to take care of themselves. And look, this is one of the real problems with the ideas that people want to implement in societies, these socialist mentalities of just, hey, everybody just gets the same, and it doesn't matter if you do a lot or a little, we just spread it around and we give a little bit of everybody. The downside to that is the horrible idea is that removes all incentive for human beings to be productive. If I'm gonna get the same as you, whether I do something or sit on my couch and play Nintendo all day long, what motivation do I have to go do something? I'm gonna get food, shelter, we all get the same. You work because you feel like working. I don't like to work. I'm gonna get the same anyway. And so it crushes any motivation for human beings to be constructive, to be productive. What is much more beneficial, and the Bible speaks of that, particularly in the New Testament, Paul was having to correct a problem of even the hyper-spiritual among the church of Thessalonica, where basically their mentality was, oh, the Lord's coming back soon. Why work? I mean, just we should just witness all day long and go on missions trips, and, and who cares about being responsible because Jesus is coming? And look, I mean, that sounds wonderful, certainly, we sh but Jesus also said we should occupy until he comes. And it's not that we shouldn't be diligent and live in light of the reality of the Lord's coming soon, but we're also called to be productive and responsible. And it got so bad that Paul had to say, look, here, let me give you a program to resolve that in the church. He says, if someone will not work, they're not allowed to eat anymore. And he didn't say if someone can't work, because that's a totally different thing. And God all throughout his word says, support the poor, help the poor, take care of the poor the working poor, the genuine people who are either trying to work and still struggling to make it, or they have a health affliction. They genuinely cannot work. That's a whole different thing. 
Somebody's disabled, they're sick, they're in a condition where they are unable to work, they're elderly. That's when compassion and care, and that's when Ephesians 4 comes into play where he says, each one should work so that you not only can provide for your own, but you have enough to share for others. The idea is to share for those who genuinely need. What the Bible says is if someone will not work. That is, they can, but they choose not to. And so here, God states this beautiful principle here that the hungry man's mouth drives him on and a person labors because they'll labor for himself. And it's almost as if God's saying that, that that's kind of a really good, wise way to go about things. Just let people's hungry mouth drive them on because it will keep everybody being productive, laboring in a sense, taking personal responsibility, which is much more beneficial for individuals, their health, and it's much more beneficial for the society as everybody's kind of doing their own responsible contribution and generating for themselves in a productive way. Now, verses 27 down through 30, you'll notice, almost kind of like a little bit of a unit here, verses 27 through 30 speak about problematic people or, or troublemakers. It seems the Holy Spirit kind of zeroes in on those who are making trouble and kind of just problematic individuals uh, you know, among the society or maybe among the people of God. Look what he says first, verse 27. He says, an ungodly man digs up evil and it is on his lips like a burning fire. So here he describes in verse 27, individuals who he says they go about digging up evil. The idea is they go around, we might say, digging up dirt on people's past errors so they go out and they're digging up stuff about people's past, evil things they've done, dirt on them, mistakes they've made. They go around digging up dirt on people's errors and then talking about it on their lips like a burning fire. So they're just, they're going around and they're talking about, and the idea is they're digging up dirt on people and then speaking about it in a way that they're basically burning people's reputation. They're doing things to just destroy their character and talk about them and he says here, verse 27, those behaving in a very you know, ungodly manner like that, he says, those are people, if they're digging up evil and they're speaking about it like a burning fire, he says, those are people who are ungodly. Those who do such things. They're ungodly troublemakers. And you know why they're ungodly? The idea of, of not like God, the opposite, is because does God do that? Does God go around digging up people's dirt? and bringing back up their failures from their past, God does the exact opposite, right? God purges people. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west, and love covers a multitude of sins. And God gives us in Christ a brand new identity. And God spends all of his time trying to convince us we're not who we once were. Again, the New Testament, as Paul writes about people who had all types of, you know, sinful lifestyles in the past, you know, things that they were doing, you know, fornicators and homosexuals and idolaters. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, such were some of you, but you were washed and cleansed and sanctified. In other words, it's almost the Holy Spirit saying, look, stop saying that's what you are. That's not what you are anymore. That's what you were. That's under the blood of Jesus. You were purged, you're cleansed. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. God says old things pass away, all things become new. And here's the thing. If God's not going around digging up people's evil and like burning fire, burning people's reputation and character, what right do we have as human beings doing that? Truth be told, people could dig up something on all of us in this room, correct? I mean, there's something to dig up on all of us. 
You know, it is pretty amazing, isn't it, after we just, you know, transitioned through, uh, you know, election day yesterday. Isn't that exactly how a lot of political campaigning goes on? You, know, you watch these ads and stuff on t- That's basically what they do. It seems like most politicians, I won't say all, but most, many, instead of telling us what they're going to do, they just dig up all the dirt that their people can go out there and find on like their competition, and that's what their whole commercial is about. Oh, this person did this, and this person did that, and they just try and burn their, their you know, opponent's reputation. And to me, I almost look at it and think, boy, something's really sad. If you can't tell me what you're going to do or what you stand for, and all you can tell me is, I'm the better of two evils... <laughs> I'm not feeling very encouraged right now. And again, this is just such a sad thing. And he says, these are troublemakers, problematic people. We don't want to find ourselves in that place. And if we ever find individuals doing that among us, whether in the church or in the world, we should remind them what you're doing is really ungodly. And it's wrong. It's being a troublemaker. He says, verse 28, a perverse man. And there the word perverse means one who's twisted, one who's polluted, a perverse man. What do they do? Sow strife. And a whisperer separates the best of friends. So those who are twisted and polluted, the Bible says, in heart and mind, the perverse person, they go about sowing strife. That is, they say and do things that plant seeds of division in relationships. They go around speaking in ways and doing things and saying things and communicating. And what they're doing is, he's noticed, he says, sowing strife. They're sowing seeds of division and damage among relationships. They're troublemakers. They're problem starters. And by the things that they go around whispering and running their mouths about and one-on-one conversations, and to me that seems to be what it's alluding to because notice what he says, verse 28, a whisperer separates the best of friends. Somebody who's a whisperer, that's called one-on-one conversation. You're whispering in someone's ear. You don't want others to know you're saying those things. This isn't somebody who's blasting from the roof. This is just somebody who goes around one by one or with another person, and they're basically with their mouth saying things, criticisms, complaining, whatever, and they're just sowing strife. And they're just whispering and running their mouth. And he says, those who do such things, what does he say? They separate the best of friends. What are they doing? They're damaging really good, solid relationships among people. The best of friends. They're causing separation and ruin in relationships. Again, it's, it's a tragedy because they're ruining solid, healthy relationships because they're running around whispering, saying things, lack of self-control, and they're a whisperer, and and it's just causing problems, and they're sowing strife. So again, God says, these are troublemakers, foolish to live like that, wise to stay away from those things. Verse 29, he says, a violent man, a violent man's one who harms people, hurts people, entices his neighbor, and leads him in a way that's not good. So the idea is leading in a way that's not good, leading someone off track, misguiding them in a way that is not good for them, leading them off a good path, leading them down a bad path. God sees that the same as violently hurting a person with evil intentions. Again, that's strong language. We think, I mean, what's a big deal? I mean, yeah, I let him off track or, I mean, yeah, I kind of, you know, manipulated that girl and guided her in the wrong direction. And what's the big, and God says, that is, to me, that's like violence because you're harming someone, you're ruining someone, you're leading them down a path that could be very destructive and painful. 
and ruinous. He says it's a violent man. Again, that's a strong term God uses, who's enticing their neighbor and leading them in a way that's not good. And then verse 30 says, he who winks his eye to devise perverse things, he purses his lips and brings about evil. Now, verse 30 seems to kind of just be picturing here in this you know, kind of picturesque language here, a person who's kind of secretly working a scheme, winking with the eye, they're just kind of, you know, directing his buddy there as they're kind of running their scam or whatever and pursing his lips, kind of giving little signals or whatever to kind of, with an impure motivation, bring about some unhealthy agenda. Verse 31, some of you may really like this one. The silver-haired head, I'm starting to join you now. It's little by little, I'm finding it more. The silver-haired head is a crown of glory, and it is found in the way of righteousness. So notice verse 31 shows us that God esteems the value of the elderly as a great resource in the society. The example that they bring, the experience that they offer, the counsel that they can supply, in a society where we have become a throwaway society and we have developed a great disrespect towards the aged and the elderly in our American culture, God says that's really not a very wise outlook. God says here, the silver-haired head, the aged, that individual, he says, that silver hair, he says, it's like a crown of glory. The idea is, again, when someone gets a crown, it's like it's an achievement right? It's a promotion. You've now been promoted. You're the king now, or you're the prince or the princess. And so that's the idea. God says that that gray hair is like a crowning achievement. They've been promoted to the place of honor now, God says. That gray hair, that silver hair is an indication that they're to be respected because of that. Particularly, he says, notice verse 31, if it's found in the way of righteousness. In other words, if someone has lived in a righteous way, then that's a crown of glory. If someone has gained a bunch of gray hair because they're living unrighteously, then they're just old and, and, and nasty and maybe not the best example to follow. So God says, look for those aged, godly people who've walked in the way of righteousness. And he says, those are people who've been promoted to a great place. Take what you can from them. They hold high esteem and respect in God's sight. And we should render the same and appreciate what they can offered to us by their experience and wisdom that they can impart through walking in a way of righteousness much longer than us. Verse 32, he says, and he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. So here God speaks about this reality of kind of developing the difficult thing we often call self-control. And he says here, a person who is, notice, slow to anger is better than a person who is mighty. And the idea of mighty there implies a mighty warrior because he's talking about someone who can conquer or take over a city in the verse. So his idea, as he's saying here, is it's better to have control of your own inward spirit than to be able to be a mighty warrior who can conquer an entire city. And, and God says here, ruling yourself, Developing self-regulation is actually a more valuable thing than many of the achievements the world often encourages us to aspire towards. 
hey, you can take a whole city and, and take over the city. You can be the king of the city. And, and if you take that city, man, you can have all the spoils and gold and silver. And, and, and man, that, and, and in the world today, we encourage, you need to do this. And that, that's a real achievement. And if you accomplish that, and wow, you'll be. And God says, you know what's one of the greatest human achievements? Self-control. Learning how to conquer ourself how to conquer our own appetites, how to conquer our own emotions, how to conquer and rule our own thoughts, how to conquer our own passions so that when we get angry, we're slow to anger, that we can rule our own inward spirit because the truth of the matter is it is harder to conquer yourself and it is harder to rule our own passions than to defeat and conquer an entire city in war, God says because it's a big challenge. The point is it takes a lot more to win the battle of controlling our own self inwardly, but it is a crucial war to be victorious in. Learning to rule our own spirit is a crucial battle to engage in, and it is the most important war that you want to be victorious in, that you learn to control your mind and your thoughts and your emotions and your feelings and your passions and your appetites. God says, That is a wonderful achievement, one who can rule his own spirit. Verse 33 says, and the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, we know, we see it on occasion, at times they would cast lots. So it's kind of like throwing dice in some ways, you might say. And they believed in the casting of lots that God would determine Uh, the outcome, and that he would cause the lot to unfold in a certain way. And, you know, the idea behind this verse is somewhat obscure, you know, as far as what exactly is being conveyed here. Obviously, we know in the New Testament, this idea of casting lots is, it's not instructed, it's not encouraged. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us to guide us in the canon of the entirety of the Word of God to direct us in our decision-making. But they firmly believed in the providence of God and the control of God over all things in such a way where the mentality was that even if I cast down some lots and say, God, if it's the white stone, it's yes. If it's the black stone, it's no. And and they firmly believed God was in control of everything and did that with that idea. It seems to be the idea conveying is that the lot is cast, but it's every decision is from the lure that sometimes we may think that maybe in our lives the lot has just fallen out to us the way that it did, and oh, why did I get this lot in life? And Or why did the lot turn out this way and nothing can be done? Look, we need to remember, ultimately, God is never disconnected from human affairs. And, you know, and the longer we walk with the Lord, I hope that we can start to see that more and more and more, that we realize that things happen. And even bad things happen and wrong things happen, and, and people do evil things and sinful things, and we ourselves may make some mistakes and wrong decisions, but to be able to rest in despite what people do, despite what people don't do, ultimately God in his power and his wisdom has ways of superintending over all things and ultimately orchestrating, in a sense, the ultimate decision so that all things work out in accordance with what he wants in the bigger picture. And that doesn't mean that, you know, God's, in a sense, is controlling everyone like robots. Things unfold, but God works by his providence because God sees what's down the road. 
And even, for example, one of the you know, passages that comes to my mind in regards to this reality is in 1 Kings chapter 12 where you know, things unfold, where the kingdom splits apart because of Rehoboam's kind of ambitious selfishness and, and, and the people pull away. Remember, Jeroboam takes 10 tribes and then Rehoboam only ends up with the two and there's this divided kingdom. Well, then that sound fitting? Or you watch the news, through, oh, divided country. Oh, we got a divided country. Well, nothing new under the sun. We got a divided kingdom. And, and when the divided kingdom happened in 1 Kings chapter 12, as those problems happened among Israel due to poor leadership, the Bible says, but the turn of events was from the Lord. And so when Rehoboam was ambitious, said, that's it. We need to go to war and fight and bring the nation back. We got to start a civil war. God told Rehoboam, this thing is from me. Stop. Stop trying to unify the nation. Let it go. Cut it out. The turn of events, God said. I know it happened because of a sinful, selfish action. And dis- but God says, but these turn of events, they're actually something I'm allowing because I'm orchestrating something that I'm going to bring to pass on the back end of that. And what a wonderful thing it is to be able to know the lot may fall out. Sometimes it may not be what we wish, but here's the the reality, gang. We have to wait on God's timing, and we have to trust the Lord and believe in his sovereignty, and we may not see what God's got planned We may not see it unfold and come together till much further down the road, but the key is God is always able to overrule, and that's what we rest in. The lot's cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord, and however needed, God will bring that best outcome to pass, and it's comforting to be able to rest in that assurance in some ways. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 17, he then says, Better is a dry morsel with quietness, than a house full of feasting with strife. Great proverb here. The idea is it's better to have a peaceful life and a peaceful household than to just have more abundance financially and materially. So God says here, some people, they may have excess monetarily. They may be feasting. They may be hitting the steakhouse every night and having great feasts and wonderful vacations and all the best clothes and all the best toys. And he says, they may be feasting and have excess monetarily, but at the same time, God says, they may be living in a household full of strife. Where though they got everything you can imagine monetarily and materially, everybody in the family is miserable and that they hate each other. And there's strife and fighting and antagonism between the, the, the marriage and, and, and the parent-child relationships. And it's just a house with a lot of money and a whole bunch of miserable people and strife. And God says it would be much better to just have a few little breadcrumbs, not even any jelly for your bread, just a few little breadcrumbs, but to have, he says, better to have just a dry morsel with quietness peace. Oh, peace and quiet. All I got is a few breadcrumbs, but I got some peace and quiet in my life. And God says the value of just peace and quiet, harmony in your marriage, healthy family life, just a peace and quiet. You can, God says that has way more value than all the other things at times people esteem. And God says, if you have to pick instead of prosperity, if you got to choose, pick peace and quiet Go with less prosperity instead of lots of prosperity and nothing but strife and misery and antagonism. Great little 
nugget of wisdom. Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. Verse two, he says, and a wise servant will rule over a son who causes shame and will share an inheritance amongst the brothers. So again, many times in that culture, servants would be employed and utilized to tutor and to mentor uh, sons that were being raised up. Uh, and at times, again, as the son would age, eventually he would take over the father's you know, business or take over part of the inheritance or so on and so forth. But here he says there can be occasions where that servant who starts basically with absolutely nothing, who's just faithful in his role and he's a wise servant and he's a diligent servant and he does his job well in good stewardship, that though he starts out with absolutely nothing to show for it, that because he handles his affairs wisely, it doesn't matter what he begins with. What matters is that though he doesn't have advantage or opportunity to start with because he behaves wisely, he actually gets promoted. And he actually, he says, at times a wise servant can end up ruling over the son if the son is foolish and the son is causing shame and behaving in wrong ways. And it seems to be the idea of wisdom here is you know, wisdom understands it's not always what we have available to us. It's more about what do we do with what we have. And so again, the son has everything at his fingertips, but if he's foolish and causes shame and he squanders opportunity and he doesn't make good choices and he's not a good steward, he can lose all of his opportunity and he misses the chance to excel and to prosper that was available to him. So he had great opportunity to start with, but he did nothing good with the opportunities that he had. Now, on the other end, here you got the servant. He has nothing to start with, nothing available to him at all. But what he does is he uses wisdom and he's a good steward with what he has. And because he does well with what he has, he ends up experiencing promotion and greater advantage and opportunity where he actually ends up sharing in the inheritance by the promotion of the father of the house to share together with the other brothers. Verse three, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. Now, again, as they would refine metals in that day, this was the way they would do that, whether silver or gold, they would put it in a furnace, they would you know, expose it to great heat. And as the heat began to work through the metal, it would bring it to a liquid form. And then the impurities would rise up to the surface and they would scrape off what they call the slag, the impurities, out of the metal, and they would repeat the process, and they would heat things up and more impurities, and so they would continue to do this until they extracted the impurities from the metal. Now, that process was something to make the metal more valuable. It wasn't to harm the metal. It was to purify it, to get impurities out of it. It was to make the metal more valuable, to actually make it stronger many times as the impurities are removed. And he says here, that is a beautiful picture of exactly how the Lord works at times in our lives. That God, and follow me here, in his wisdom, is willing to sacrifice my comfort for my development. And so sometimes, he says, as the Lord test the hearts in the same way, sometimes he'll put us into the fire or he'll let a fire come into our lives. He'll let some heat and difficulty, which isn't pleasant, right? Nobody enjoys being in the fire. The New Testament talks about the fiery trials that we go through, James chapter one and first Peter chapter one, where he talks about, you know, these fiery trials and challenges and difficulties. Nobody enjoys that, but everybody would agree that typically when we're in the fire, 
that's when God's doing character development, right? Because when we're in the fire, that's when things start happening. The impurities in my life and your life, they start coming up to the surface. And God starts confronting you with your own struggles and attitudes and challenges, and he's bringing things up and making you confront you know, your own thing. But God, through that, is saying, look, this is an impurity. I want to get this out of your life. It's not good for you. And I'm trying to make you a more valuable, solid, healthy. And, and so I need to use a little bit of fire to bring some of these impurities up out of you to get those things out of your life. And again, God's not doing it to destroy us. God's actually doing it to enhance our lives, right? So that's the key, that when we find ourselves in the fire and in the heat and going through difficult times, we realize, Lord, you're just testing things out in my heart. And like that metalsmith, you know, you're looking to just make me a more pure and valuable individual from your perspective. And again, they say that the way that a metalsmith could tell the process of purifying metals was completed was that they would sit there right by the refining pot, controlling the heat, controlling the heat, turning it up, turning it down, taking out the impurities, and they would keep looking into the liquid gold or silver until they were able to see something of their own reflection. And when they saw their own reflection, they realized, okay, the impurities are out, the process is done. And what a fitting picture that is, is of the Lord. Again, he doesn't just put us in the fire and then walk away and leave the pot boiling. It feels like that sometimes, right? He's right there controlling the burner, putting it up and down, and he's looking to see the image of himself, the image of Christ developed in us as he's purifying us in a good way. But he's willing to sacrifice our comfort to help with our character development. Verse four, an evildoer heeds, or gives heed, excuse me, to false lips, and a liar listens eagerly to a spiteful tongue. Now, pay attention to this here, verse four. We've seen a lot about God cautioning the problem of what? Our mouths, right? I mean, we've seen a numerous amount of things talked about so far of struggles with speaking things we shouldn't, using our mouths in a way that we shouldn't. But notice now, here the focus is not describing the person speaking wrongly, but the person who has the problem of being an unhealthy listener. Because see, here's the thing. People who say wrong things, troublemakers, slanderers, gossips, if they had nobody to listen to them, they wouldn't have any opportunity to keep doing what they're doing unless they want to go shout in the middle of the you know, wilderness. The reality is, is that they find somebody on the receiving end. And God says here, don't overlook, it is just as foolish and unwise, verse 4, he says, to be someone who gives heed to false lips and he says, listens eagerly to a spiteful tongue. So God says here, the person who's giving heed to lying, the one who's eagerly listening to spiteful speech of people who are in spiteful ways, complaining and criticizing and whispering, he says, those who are willing to give ear to such things and may even enjoy indulging it, God says that proves that their own heart is not in a good condition because they're eagerly listening to a spiteful tongue. God says they themselves, as a bad listener, are becoming an evildoer and a liar also. So good to remember, again, it's just as foolish to be that listener. Don't be a receiver when you know people are telling you things they shouldn't be saying in the way that they're speaking. Verse 5, he who mocks the poor, so there we see the heart of God towards the poor, he who mocks the poor reproaches his maker, again, God, again, thinking of the working poor, those, the widow, the orphan, 
those who are struggling, and, and he says those who mock the poor, the idea is they rudely dismiss them as, oh, the, you know, oh, these people, these poor. And he says those who are doing that, kind of mocking and bothered by the presence of those who are less fortunate, God says they're actually reproaching their maker. It becomes an insult to God. Why? Because God loves everybody, right? And Jesus said the poor you will have with you always. You know, interesting, we, we're so concerned sometimes to want to eradicate poverty, and Jesus said you, it's, you can't. Unless you're erasing the words of Jesus, Jesus said the poor you will have with you always. We should minister to them, care for them, but Jesus said some people are in a poor condition because their maker allowed them to be poor. And that may be the status that God's allowed them to be in. They're in a third world country, but look, what matters ultimately is whether you're in a third world country and you're extremely poor or whether you are the richest person on the planet by God's allowance, what God cares about is are the circumstances of your life going to cause you to come to a place where you realize you need Christ? That's what matters most. And so whether rich or poor, healthy or sick, young or old, God's agenda always is whatever is going to give this person the best chance in the midst of what their circumstances are, wherever they're at. God doesn't say, oh, those poor people and, and the... God just loves human beings. And God says this will be a part of reality. There will always be rich and poor, healthy, sick. His concern is that the maker of all cares about every soul. Verse 5, he also says, and he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Now, that's a, that's a kind of a challenging reproof there. The idea there is wisdom should cause us to always remember that it is never, ever wise to rejoice when misfortune happens to another person. No matter what the reason that may be, we should never find ourselves being glad at the calamity of another person. Oh, finally, they got what they deserved. Be careful there. That is arrogance from a human perspective. Thankfully, we didn't always get what we deserved, right? So again, somebody may undergo calamity, Maybe it's calamity because the Lord's chastening them and disciplining them, and maybe it is a consequence of bad things or wrong things they've done, but we should never rejoice in their misfortune. We should never celebrate their calamity. We should feel pity for them in their calamity. So whether it's because of painful you know, consequences of bad choices or just a calamity, we should, for any reason, we should never be glad at that. And he says, be careful. He who's glad at the calamity of another will not go unpunished. God says, you're just inviting that into your life. You don't want God to ultimately say, oh, you think calamity is such a joke, huh? You realize I can pull my hand back and a calamity can come to your life at any moment, Tony? I don't think you want to celebrate somebody else's calamity. So God kind of says, look, don't be foolish. Be wise. You know, be sad at calamity, not glad at the calamity of another. Verse 6, he says, And children's children, or the idea is grandchildren, are the crown of old men, and the glory of children is their father. Now, the idea here is grandchildren, the, the crown of old men. The idea is the crown, again, is, is like a reward. It's the picture of a reward, something that you're proud of, something that brings great blessing. And so he says grandchildren, that's what they are. They're the reward. They're the blessing that comes into the life of a, of a grandparent, that wonderful role of, of the glory of getting to enjoy a grandchild. They become a great source of pride to the grandparent. And look, I, now that I finally become a grandparent, for the first time in my life, I'm starting to wonder if I'm going to use up all the storage on my phone because of pictures. 
I mean, I told my wife the other day, I've been always the cheap, able to keep the iPhone SE. I hate the bigger ones because they don't fit in my pocket anyway, and I barely use it. And I, I never hardly ever take pictures a whole lot. All of a sudden, I'm going, whoa, man, like I, I might have to get some more gigabytes or something. There's going to be a lot of pictures and videos on there all of a sudden. I'm only two months into the process here. But again, there's that beautiful thing of, you know, just the pride and joy and the enjoyment of grandchildren. He says, that's what it is. They become the reward, the blessing of the, of the grandparent, the children's children. And then he also adds, verse 6, the glory of children is their father. Now, that's a beautiful statement. The idea is children in a healthy family should be able to, he says, verse 6, actually glory, rejoice in, be proud of their own Father. So children in a healthy family, God says, if things operate in a healthy way, children should be able to glory in, to be proud of their own father. In a healthy family relationship, father-child, that child should deeply admire their father. They should be able to look at their father and say, that man is my hero. He, he, he's my hero. I admire him. And so God says in the same way that grandparents are able to rejoice in glory in their grandchildren, he says children should also be able to greatly rejoice in their admiration of their own father. That's what God wants, God's heart and God's design. You know, boy, a good reminder for those of us who are fathers that we would give our kids the biblical opportunity to do that, to glory and rejoice in who we are by the fathers that we are. Verse 7, he says, an excellent speech is not becoming to a fool, much less lying lips to a prince. So the idea here is fools will rarely ever have anything worthwhile to say. It's not becoming because they rarely say anything worthwhile, where in contrast, he says, much less lying lips to a prince. And the idea there is princes and rulers, because they are leaders, they should in rare, rare times ever be caught or found speaking in a way that's dishonest because they realize that honesty is essential to leadership. So in the same way, you'll rarely find anything worthwhile in the mouth of a fool. He says it should be an extremely rare thing to ever catch a leader lying. That should not happen because he says honesty is essential to leadership in that way. Verse 8, a present, your translation may say a bribe. That's probably the better picture there. We would get that idea in our mind better. A bribe is a precious stone in the eyes of its possessor, the one who's going to make the bribe. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Now, this certainly is not God condoning using bribery. The idea here is the viewpoint of the person who's using a bribe is they realize, you know what, considering how humanity works, most people go for it. And so the idea here is the person who's using bribery realized, boy, that paid off. The gift worked. I was able to you know, make this work by having this possession or this prize, this present to give, uh, and it seems like it always prospers because, again, sadly, people as human beings tend to give in to that. You know, we have that statement, not that it's a, a good compliment, but you know, that everybody's got a what? Price. And, and, and sometimes that's a really sad thing, but here the Bible is just kind of alluding to that realization. Verse 9, he who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates 
friends. Again, notice God here comes back to this idea again of trying to protect relationships. God doesn't like to see relationships ruined and ripped apart. He doesn't like to see division happen. God would much rather see harmony and healthy relationships. And so because of that, he gives wisdom to caution us from the foolish errors that will lead to the ruin and separation of relationships. He says there in verse 9, he who covers a transgression seeks love. Now, the idea there of a transgression, a transgression is sort of a conscious, selfish, willful act. It's not, oops, I missed the mark, I made a mistake. A transgression is kind of an, you know, willful, you know, arrogant malice. You just, you cross the line because of anger or stubbornness. And here the idea is that you are the person who's been transgressed against. And so he says, when someone is willing to cover a transgression against them, they're someone who's seeking love. And the idea there of covering a transgression, seeking love, is the implication that when we're transgressed against, if you seek to cover it, or we might say, if you seek to just bury it, just bury it. You know what? It ha- I don't want to further expose the error. I don't want to you know, blow it up. I don't want to broadcast what happened. I'm just going to keep it under wraps. I'm just going to bury it. Love covers a multitude of sins. He says, if you take that approach, you're seeking love. But he says, he who repeats a matter is someone who's going to separate friends. The idea is if you're not willing to bury it and cover it and not expose it and broadcast it and promote it, but you keep on repeating it. How? I'll tell you one way. You keep repeating it right here. You keep repeating it in your head again and again. I can't believe they, I can't. And and you just keep repeating it in your head and thinking it again and thinking it again. and And every time you're thinking it, the root of bitterness is just It's just going right down through your skull and all the way down through your whole, before you know it, your whole body's a root of bitterness, right? And you just keep repeating the matter or you keep repeating the matter in a way where you just keep holding on to it, nursing it like a grudge or you keep repeating the matter in the sense of instead of just burying it and dealing with it and letting love cover the multitude of sins and letting it go, you repeat the matter because you start telling other people about it. And you talk about it to others and you repeat it to others. And all of a sudden, he says, you find that what that does, it actually ends up ruining and separating the relationship. And all of a sudden, friendships are are separated. People are, are pulled apart. Division happens. So he says, look, better to seek love when a transgression happens than just repeat the matter and cause separation. Verse 10, he says, rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. So the idea here would be a person's wisdom is revealed by what does it take to get through to them when trying to identify their error? What does it require to get through to a person to identify their area? That is a real good indicator of their wisdom or their foolishness. Notice what he says, rebuke, which means just to challenge somebody on their error to confront, hey, I don't know if that's right, Rebuke is more effective for a wise man. So somebody's wise if all you got to do is talk to them and they're receptive to, oh, you know what? Thanks for bringing that to my attention. And they humbly with a teachable attitude listen to the reproof. They don't take it personal. They don't get all hostile. They just, they show their wisdom because they realize, oh, thanks for bringing to my attention. I I was wrong there. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. And they just process it where he says, when somebody is a fool, look what he says, a hundred blows on a fool. The idea is if somebody is a fool, 
you could punish them repeatedly, beat them a hundred times, and they're still never going to admit they're wrong because they are never wrong, right? And so he says, when somebody is very hard to convince that they're actually wrong once in a while, God says they prove they're a very foolish person. You can tell a whole lot, God says, about someone's wisdom or foolishness. What does it take to get through to them in identifying their error? An evil man, verse 11, seeks only rebellion. Therefore, a cruel messenger will be sent against him. So again, never wise to be evil and rebellious. If you're a rebellious person at heart, or you keep rebelling against authority or rebelling against the boss or rebelling, he says, you're going to find that you're going to bring a lot of painful things into your life. Verse 12, this is a great picturesque one. Let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Let a man meet a bear robbed of his cubs. Now, probably one of the most dangerous things, right, would be to meet an angry grizzly bear who's had his cubs stolen away. That is probably one of the most dangerous, threatening, unsafe encounters meeting a bear that's been robbed of his cubs. And he says, you would be safer to go hug a bear that has just been robbed of his cubs, he says, than to be someone who is a fool in their own folly or to be someone who embraces a fool who keeps living in foolish ways. And here the idea seems to clearly implicate that wisdom understands how unsafe living like a fool is. God says, it is more dangerous to live foolishly than to go and hug a bear that's just been robbed of his cubs. Because foolish living isn't just dumb. It's dangerous, man. It's incredibly dangerous. It's very, very destructive and very, very harmful. And in the same way, that's something that we should take to heart. We also sometimes need to realize when someone is acting like a fool, you got to use wisdom with how much interaction and involvement and connection you're going to step into in their life if you don't want to end up having the same experience that what it would probably be like if you gave a big hug to a bear that's just been robbed of its cubs. And sometimes we have to realize, Lord, they are acting very foolish in all kinds of folly. What's my degree of involvement here? Because if I'm not careful, I can step into something and then I end up suffering harm. My family suffers harm. Your marriage suffers harm because we stepped into something where maybe it would have been better to just let them in their foolishness kind of be something we step back and pray for and only give a small degree of involvement in. So again, wisdom tries to navigate that the best as possible. Let's stand. We'll